Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. Pleasure to welcome on the podcast today. He is a wildlife veterinarian for many, many years, and he's the CEO of Global Wildlife Resources in Freeland, Washington, Dr. Mark Johnson. Dr. Mark, how are you today, sir? Hello, John. Hello, Steve. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. No, it was a pleasure. And I uh, I got your information, uh, probably, I think I mentioned to this, this to you beforehand, from a, I believe, either a former student or someone who took one of your courses, listened to the podcast and threw your name into the ring. So I'm always mm-hmm. happy to take on people that I don't know and I need to do the research on. So reading up on you, it was, again, it's a pleasure to have you here. You've done so much work over the years. So let's jump right in. Give people a little bit of a background, if you can, if that's possible, on you know your work and really the last 35 years in a nutshell of, of what you do and what you've been doing. So I'm a wildlife veterinarian and I specialize in wildlife capture and handling. And uh, I started this way mm. back in veterinary school over 30 years ago. And uh, even in vet school, I just wanted to handle wildlife. And uh, during Christmas breaks, spring breaks, I would take any time I had to assist Wyoming Game and Fish and Colorado Division of Wildlife with bighorn sheep captures. And and I took every wildlife uh, course, related course that I could uh, get in veterinary school. And it just seemed to all unfold in a, in a really good way that way. So my specialty is wildlife capture and handling, and I assist in the field. Uh, I've been doing it for over 30 years, and I also thoroughly enjoy teaching the topic. Uh, was this originally your plan to switch from veterinary work into in the field capture, or did that, that just happen organically? Well, that's a great question, Steve, because... It happened kind of quirky. I I just inhaled wildlife. I took every <laughs> elective I met I mentioned and and every school break. And somehow I have no idea, but when I graduated, I forgot about wildlife, literally <laughs> and completely. And I went into private practice, which has made me a stronger wildlife veterinarian. It there's something about knowing how to treat animals, doing surgeries, drawing up drugs and giving injections. And uh, it, it's made me stronger in assisting wildlife professionals in the field. So I was in private practice for about two years. Um, I floated a bit. It's often common with uh, graduating veterinarians to not really have a place to go into practice right away. So. I, about a year into into this, maybe two years, I was trying to figure out what to do. I'd been in private practice and I was searching for what to do next. And it just hit me just hard in the chest. And I drove to the next phone booth and told my folks I was going to be a wildlife veterinarian the rest of my life. So I took up... Um, home in Missoula, Montana, and I was a relief veterinarian, which is like a substitute teacher. And that gave me some income so I could work as a biologist and a veterinarian. So I would go to people and that worked with wildlife and just ask, what could I do with you, or do for you? Mm. Can, can you tell 
us what is what are the major difference, differences between being a private veterinarian and a wildlife veterinarian? Where where are the, where do the animals come from? How do they get delivered to you? What kind of shape are they usually in? And what's the what's the goal? You know, I think the the biggest difference between a domestic animal veterinarian and a wildlife veterinarian is one is their ability to move logistically in the field. What really is realistic and what's practical? And then knowing the physiology of the animals and and how the drugs interact and the constraints and challenges of the biologist. You know, for example, uh, in private practice, we have a a pre-anesthesia drug that that domestic veterinarians always give called atropine, and it stimulates the fight or flight reflex. It increases the heart rate. And if you gave anesthesia to a basset hound, who's not too excited, I might add, (laughs) then you need to give something to add more excitement so the drugs don't hit the animal as hard and they don't, it doesn't slow the heart down. Well, a domestic animal veterinarian always gives atropine, but we don't want to because the wildlife has that fight or flight reflex. They've already got that in them. So that's a, just a small example of how wildlife veterinarians approach things a bit differently. Mm. And then we have to figure out how do we give the drugs to the animal? That's easy in private practice, but uh, a whole new challenge in wildlife work. Absolutely. You have on your website, when you talk about capture ethics, and it seems that this really is a profound thing that you really try to hit on, especially in the coursework that you do and what you're talking about here with, with care, compassion, and respect are the lines the same as Stephen was mentioning with a private practice veterinarian and a wildlife veterinarian, or are things a little bit different in how those three come through because of maybe the situations that you're in, in a sterile office setting, as opposed to possibly being out in the field and trying to administer these drugs and, and capture and relocation? It's a really nice exploration because this topic is uh, deeply personal to me and and incredibly important to us uh, as wildlife professionals and zoo professionals. Domestic, and I'm going to have a few biases here, and I mean no disrespect to anyone at any time, Mm -hmm. but my take is that it's easy for domestic uh, animal veterinarians myself included at one time, to talk about care for the animal. And it is deeply a part of their profession as well. Sometimes behind the scenes, that isn't always evident in in how that works, but it's always talked about. Um, And I'd say the majority of the times, you know, veterinarians and vet technicians just know how to really care for that animal. It takes practice and a lot of thoughtfulness to know how to how to actually do that, even in in the back rooms of a vet clinic, there's a lot involved. For example, do you do you cage cats and dogs so they face each other? There's a great example in that many veterinarians may overlook. In the wildlife arena and the wildlife profession, we haven't talked about this as much. We talk about taking care of the animal often. And yet we don't bring in these heartfelt values, care, compassion, and respect for every animal we handle. And I, 
must admit that it's taken me several decades to fine tune my terminology and how to talk about it in a profession that doesn't openly discuss heartfelt values and to have the courage to talk about it. So we always want to care for this animal, but if we really verbalize it, we can strengthen our role as a biologist, for example, we can, we can modify our practices such as drug delivery, how we walk around the animal, how we behave around the animal, mm -hmm. how we carry the animal from one spot to another. If we always realize that we want to do this with care, compassion, and respect, it changes our mannerisms. It changes right. our practices. So it, it really it influences everything we do in the field when we bring this to the surface. Yeah, I think, and I think you touched on it a little bit there, but you, you also used the words honor and ego several times on, on your website. And that those are a little bit more nuanced than words like care and respect. How do those two concepts come into play when, when capturing wildlife? Well, I love those topics. Thank you, Steve. The, you know, honoring an animal humbles ourselves. It, it recognizes that, you know, these animals are putting a roof over our head. They're putting clothes on our back and food on the table. True. And another message that took me a while to have the courage to say is the well-being of the animal is more important than our work. And that is a core fundamental statement and message in my, in my courses, both live and online. And then we change our priorities. It isn't do we, you know, I have to get a radio collar on this animal. I've got to collect blood. No, I have to take care of this animal. This is the highest priority. It's more important than my work. And that's how we honor the animal. That's one way. There's other ways to honor the animal. And for example, I recommend don't step over a, an animal as you walk around it instead. And from a practical perspective, that's a no brainer. Mm -hmm. You don't want to accidentally step on the animal. But from a heartfelt perspective, it changes our whole work environment. It, it, when we are given permission and guidelines on how to give care, honor, and respect for the animal, it allows us to be full human beings in the scientific world. There's less burnout. There's more passion. There's more joy and, and contentment, peace of mind in what we do. Because capture and handling is very aggressive. Mm. It's, it's a non-domestic violence in a way. And imagine helicopter net gunning an animal and you are literally terrifying this animal by chasing it with a helicopter. My gosh, <laughs> this is aggressive. Yeah. And yet we take it for granted. Yeah. And um, I've even had students take my course and they said, gosh, I, I took a college class. They showed a, a net gunning of an antelope and how he rumbled and tumbled in the net and everybody laughed. And after I took your course, I just had a bit of sadness for that animal. So talking about care, honor, and respect for the animal improves our animal handling, and it helps us, uh, it helps our work become more rewarding. But it's important to emphasize we still have to handle these animals, even though I talk about how 
um, aggressive we are and how rough it is, how much of a fight it is, we still have to capture and handle wildlife so we can collect data about these animals, so we can learn about their landscapes, mm -hmm. so that we can preserve habitats. Yeah. And, and so it's a given, we still have to do it. And so the way we do it is with thoughtfulness, thorough preparation, and attending to all the details, which is what my courses provide. Right. But it's exciting. It is so exciting. We've had this discussion too with some of the biologists in Yellowstone that do some of these tracking and things like that. And I believe there, I believe Maddie Jackson, I think, who was in Minnesota at the time, and they took a lot of those precautions that you were saying. And they, it what they weren't trying to rush through those data collections, like you were saying. It was we have X amount of time. We know the drug is going to be in the, in the wolves in particular for a certain amount of time, and we're going to gather what information we can and not try to rush through the process and really be involved and aware of the animal itself as opposed to really trying to rush through and do all the things, all the data we need to do. We gather the data we can. We let the animal come out of the, you know, the drug as, as best it can without so much stress on it. So I think your teachings, whether you know it or not, I think are out there in practice already, which is great. Do you find, and you mentioned some of the students that come to your courses maybe have a different feeling afterwards. Do you find that there's a lot more or less enthusiasm for this type of work when they come through your door as opposed to where they were before just taking regular biology courses or wildlife capture courses? So yes, the, the culture is changing and, and we see more where, where the biologists, the professionals are handling the animal in a more compassionate way. And yet there are still a lot of old ways of doing things. So there is a, let's see if I can uh, answer your question here, but there's a lot of aha moments for, for the professionals as well as the college students who take my courses. One is they don't hear the directness of, getting, of giving permission to them to incorporate heartfelt values. That's almost never spoken. Um, and giving them the, the tools and techniques. How do we incorporate care, compassion, and respect into our tools, techniques, and mannerisms? That is all, that's, that discussion needs to be continuously presented throughout a course rather than as a topic of animal welfare, for example. So, so the students are, are finding a lot of aha moments from, from hearing these suggestions for how we work with these animals in a compassionate way. And, and they're just, they're relieved, they're exhilarated, they're motivated. These courses have often been a profound personal or professional experience. And uh, sp speaking of the complexities of just capture in general, I've, I've watched some videos of it. it, it, it it is extremely intense. Just in a broad in a broad sense, how much injury or loss is is typical? I know this might be a hard question to answer, but what how much loss or injury during capturing is typical? What are, what are the general causes of that? Well, it was actually uh, a common topic back 
decades ago when I was a veterinary student and uh, an early wildlife veterinarian, it was given and accepted that we're gonna lose 10% of the animals we handle for the good of the population. And we heard that over and over again, and that was well accepted. But there is again an evolution in our culture where the, every animal is valuable. So we no longer accept that. Mm -hmm. We are assessing the death or injury of every animal with great scrutiny. Now, there's still some things that need improvement. For example, it is standard protocol at Wolfhaven International, where I teach. I've been teaching there for probably over a decade. And they do a post-capture assessment. When they round up the wolves to drug them or to crate them or do their physical exams, they always have a meeting afterwards to evaluate how well they did it. We should always find a weak link. How can we make improvements? Because every capture and handling can, can be improved without exception. Even if it's just lubricating a syringe pole, we gotta find we should find something. So I learned from Wolfhaven the importance of self-assessments after captures. And it is something that is not standard protocol in the wildlife profession. So we are getting better at, at um, our animal handling, but, um, and the importance of every animal is significant, but we still can carry this a step further with self-assessments. Now, how many animals are lost now? It's on a case-by-case -case basis. I am glad to say that it doesn't happen as often, but we do kill animals. We, we do uh, injure animals. In fact, at the beginning of every course I teach, I teach that our highest goal is not to handle wildlife. We first look for hands-off alternatives, such as trail cams, um, scat sniffing dogs, uh, drones, and we look diligently for, for hands-off alternatives first. And we are limited to what we can do with hands-off techniques. In many cases, we have to radio collar the animal to find the dens or to, to follow the animal like a wolverine to see what terrain it's using and what drainages and what habitat and how it's interacting with the roads and the human development. So we have to get our hands on the animal and um, recognizing in my courses that when we handle animals, it's our second best option. So it's a, it's a really valuable way to, to look at the importance of each animal. I just have one more trapping question, I think, before, I mean, unless John, you have one too, but before we move on to some wolf stuff, but are there legal parameters that groups that perform wildlife capture have to stay within? Or like, are there legal restrictions on methods of capture or what would be an unacceptable cause of loss or injury, things like that? That's a challenging um, question there, Steve. Hmm. Uh, different states have different regulations. And uh, some, for example, recommend footholds, uh, not recommend, some states, for example, will prohibit leg hold traps or foothold traps, I call them, when they're used properly for research. And, uh, and other states freely allow that. Mm 
there aren't really capture related uh, illegal techniques, but there's some that are really frowned upon. Sure. Decades ago, they were snaring wolves, neck snaring wolves for research. And when it works, it's great. But when it doesn't, it kills the animal. So for 10 years, they said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And our profession has about a 10-year memory. So someone started bringing up neck snares as another capture technique. And it was important for people to say, no, that didn't work a decade ago. It's too harmful on the animal when it doesn't work. So these are real dynamic discussions that always have to occur. I'm a project veterinarian for the Colville Tribe Augmentation, Lynx Augmentation Program. And it was really exciting to see that when we were developing the protocols, they recognized the importance of box traps for capturing the cats. And, and that way the animal's held and contained until we can drug the animal. I'm sure that the techniques have come leaps and bounds now, at least in, in retrospect to when you were working with bighorn sheep and then how did you get involved initially with the gray wolf introduction how did that come to pass because you were working with bighorn sheep how does that we we always love to ask this question when people are working with ungulates or prey animals and then it moves over into predatory animals in whatever amount of study it is so how did you get involved initially and what were those so I believe you were around for three or four years while that project, that project was moving on. What were, what were all the things that, that were going on uh, for you in that time period? Well, I learned about bighorn sheep during my veterinary school years. And, and I also learned how to move around in the field, you know, how to, just how to navigate being in the field logistically. And, and then I was in private practice for two years and I always approached people, biologists, asking, what can I do for you? And one biologist said, would you teach us drugging in a bear handling course? I had never handled a bear, but I knew the immobilizing drugs from a veterinary school perspective. <laughs> and, uh, and so I taught a course for Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. And at the end of the training, they asked if I wanted to uh, be a biologist uh, on their field crew. So my first animals that I handled out of veterinary school were grizzly bears and black bears. And it was a very intense project. It was two years in a row, um, two months, uh, basically May and June, we, uh, we captured bears with foot snares, and that's, um, that's a challenging topic to discuss. Um, a lot of injuries, a lot of non-target captures, but in those days, that was pretty much all they had. And, uh, and these were very conscientious professionals. They even used head covers in 1988, and that was not very common. They were good biologists to learn from. They used ground claws, really good techniques. So, John, that was, that was the, those were the first animals that I handled. And I got a call when I was up at um, the Hungry Horse Reservoir area near Glacier. I got a call from Glacier Rangers saying, Dr. Mark, we've got a mountain lion in the area. We got to have drugged. And 
So we talked about me going up there and luckily the cat ran away before we could uh, put anything together, but because I've never handled a cat before. So I asked my colleagues, who's the greatest, most conscientious professional mountain lion biologist? And they said, oh, it's Kerry Murphy in Yellowstone Park. So I called up Kerry and said, I've worked with bears. I've never worked with cats. Would you hire me as a biologist? And he did. So for, for one, one uh, winter, one season, I was hiking the backcountry, tracking Mount lions and drugging them out of my backpack with my colleagues. It was absolutely one of the most amazing field experiences I, I've ever had. And then I heard rumors they were bringing wolves to Yellowstone. This is around 89 or so. So I went right to the head of research and said, John, if you are going to be capturing and handling wolves, you should know everything there is about how to capture them, how to drug them, how to hold them, how to transport them, and how to address diseases. And he said, Mark, would you please write up a job description? So I wrote up a job description and they made it a little bit bigger and hired me as project veterinarian for the Yellowstone Wolf Reintroduction, which has been just, just an amazing, amazing experience. I mean, that's, you ran the gamut there between bears and, I mean, those are the three big predators that everybody loves to get into. When you were working on that specific project, so you, you basically make your own job description, which I find, I feel like a lot of those things are happening more and more where we've heard people go, yeah, I just applied for the job. It was two lines and they said, you're hired just because they were there. But you literally made your own job description and then you filled that position. In the course of that reintroduction, were you already thinking in your mind and turning the wheels about how this capture, these transportations could be done better and already looking into the future for yourself and thinking about these are techniques that we can use, but we can build from. No, John, I couldn't because I'd never handled a wolf before. <laughs> How can I improve my techniques if I don't know what I'm doing? Right. And um, so I, I reached, I, Luckily, we had to do a lot of preparation and there was a lot of documents written for the politics to convince Congress to support this. There was a, a lot of, um, you know, the conservation organizations were, were teaching pro-wolf instead of anti-wolf uh, ideas. And they actually changed the sentiment uh, towards wolves in about five years. And, uh, and I, I have to say, I credit Norm Bishop who is an uh, information officer in Yellowstone as one of the leaders of doing that, um, played a, a remarkable role. But um, so I had that time to network with captive wolf programs in, um, to help me write the protocols. You know, we really had no idea what we were going to do. Were we going to capture wolves and just release them in the park? Were we going to set up a breeding facility outside the park and then release the pups? There was, there was no, there were no books to read. I kept wanting to go to the library and look up wolf reintroduction. I had a craving to do that. You know, now I'd, I'd be wanting to go to the internet, 
but there was nothing out there. So they, the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did a great job to interview all the experts, and they came up with um, soft releases in Yellowstone Park and hard releases in Idaho. And what that means is we would capture related animals up in Canada, transport them, and hold them in holding facilities in Yellowstone in acclimation pens. And the idea is that if they're held there for weeks to months, they would actually call that home once they're released. And then we would use the teenagers from the packs and we would hard release them in Idaho. These are animals that would be leaving the pack anyways and finding their own way and looking for a mate. And so it really fit that we would we would release the, the, the youngsters, the teenagers into Idaho and let them find each other, which they did. When they were capturing wolves, um, if you know this, when they were capturing wolves and you know, selecting which animals would be released. Was there, was, was there a selection process? Was there criteria for which wolves were good candidates to be released or were any of them rejected as possible reintroduction candidates? Or was it really whatever we catch? That's, that's the best we got. That's great question, Steve. And um, I had the unique opportunity of participating in essentially every phase of the wolf reintroduction, uh, except for the, the Idaho releases. So I did the planning, the preparation. Um, we did an initial scoping where they caught some wolves, radio collared and released them so we could find the packs later. And, and then the escorting the wolves. I escorted all four flights of wolves into the U.S., and um, and followed them, the Yellowstone wolves, and then released them and and helped care for them in the acclimation pens. So yes, uh, there was a selection process, and we were able to find the wolves from talking to the local biologists, and uh, the helicopter capture crews would look for wolf packs, but we also followed radio collared animals. And it was really quite remarkable what happened. There were efforts to capture related animals. We'd love to capture alpha pairs and hold them in the acclimation pen because then we have an instant pack. So the, the helicopter capture crew would chase a wolf pack with a helicopter from a distance try to isolate the lead animals and dart those animals. And in most cases, we got at least one alpha, but we probably didn't get the pair. But there was one pack that was so amazing. The helicopter crew found this wolf pack that was really quite large, over a dozen animals. And they flew in, there's two helicopter crews. They flew in, darted a wolf, the whole pack spread out and disappeared. And when this helicopter landed, the wolves started howling as they're leaning over the drugged animal and processing it. And, and, and the wolves gathered up 
And when the helicopter came up or the second helicopter was there, it was able to dart another wolf from that pack. And this pack kept howling when the helicopter landed and regrouping. And we got a very large group of animals from the same pack, which was really uh, a, a powerful addition to the acclimation pens. And uh, Rose uh, Crystal Creek pen is the, is the location where we had those animals. And then we took some of those yearlings for the Idaho, um, the Idaho release. I was one of three people who decided which wolves went where. Dave Meach, uh, you know, the master of, of wolf research. Yeah. Um, uh, Steve Fritz represented the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and I was there wearing the National Park Service hat, and we would choose which wolves went where. Was there any follow-up study done on the impact of removing alpha wolves from Canadian packs? No, but there's enough understanding in uh, about wolf biology that that we know from a, a biological perspective that these animals restructure, they they form new breeding pairs, and uh, sometimes lower animals will fill in the gaps if they're not related, if they're from an outside pack. Um, biologically, then that that's quite understood that they would recover quite easily. It was interesting that the Canadians were really quite pleased that we were taking the wolves <laughs> from, uh, from Canada because they were often putting pressure on the, on the trap lines. And, and of course there's occasional depredations. Yeah. And then the biologists who loved wolves were supportive and excited for us because we were expanding the wolf habitats. Exactly. And I guess genetics too. Yeah, I remember when we spoke with Carter Niemeyer, he gave us really the, the down and dirty details of how that all came about and, and reading his books. And I can just imagine you being in that situation. That must have been just such an incredible experience for you. And really, I think for, for overall, for all the organizations, you know, for the, the, all the services that were involved, for that to go off and be able to to say this was a successful release and uh, and repopulation. It seems like everybody we've spoken to has been involved or or is involved in some sort of restoration project now. Really, I mean that. I guess for better or worse, seems to be the gold standard of how the catch and release and relocation has worked. Um, even though it's uh, almost thirty years ago now. What do you? What did you take away from that experience for yourself? What were the things that you did that you that you took away? Well, it changed my life in so many ways. You know, there's there's a lot of ways to answer that, John. Um, it was a great biological success. I want to go back to that a little bit and just touching um, on things relating to to Carter's discussions and books, and you know. Um, this is a great celebration, but it's hard on some people. The ranch, many ranchers, you really struggle with this. And, you know, when I graduated from high school, I, I, I left Minnesota for Montana the day after high school graduation, and I cowboyed for a year. 
And I know the struggles that a lot of people have with the wolves. Now, they don't need to be. I really believe that. I believe that there are um, enough support mechanisms, strategies, and, and healthy ranching principles that will um, help mitigate the damage. But when a wolf goes into your herd and tears your animals up, that is personal. That hurts. It hurts emotionally. It's like, you know, it's even worse than breaking into your garage, someone breaking into your garage and stealing your favorite bicycle. I mean, this is really personal besides financial. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it has to be the hardship that, that the ranching industry often claims and certainly the hunting um, groups uh, suggest, but we still need to honor the ranchers and the pressures that they face, you know, there are far more than any wolves. Um, The wolves are an easy one to identify. So as we sort out the details of, of coexistence, which Suzanne Stone, who you interviewed is, is so good at addressing, you know, we need to make sure we honor all people affected by the wolves. And I, I want to say that before moving on about what a great success this uh, project was. Biologically, it was absolutely amazing. And, and that's only because of the wolves. It had nothing to do with us. Uh, they were so resilient um, and, and so flexible, so capable. I think about the efforts made of the black-footed ferret project and the black-footed ferret reintroduction. My heart goes out to all of those uh, professionals who have worked hard on that. And if if a student wanted to do a good uh, paper, uh, to write a good paper, they should compare the number of animal of, of black-footed ferrets that were introduced, reintroduced into the wild and and the efforts that took place, the years and the and the money, and how it really hasn't led to great success. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. I know some of these players personally and are good friends. And they they watched these small number of wolves that were brought over and just populated the ecosystem and made amazing changes to the ecosystem. That's just a, another incredible story, which I'm sure you've talked about. Um, and then here's this other program that occurred almost the same time, and and they didn't have nearly the ecological ecological success. Amazing comparison. I, be, I believe that what you're saying is true. If, if wolves are that flexible and they, they are so adept to repopulate um, an area that's void of, of, of other competition, why weren't wolves repopulating Montana from Canada naturally or, or were they to some degree? Well, we did have wolves crossing the border and, and, um, and, immigrating into uh, northern uh, Montana. So, you know, we know that that was occurring, but the pressures and the hatred for wolves was strong, strong, strong. And people would go into dens um, with some very nasty tools and and get the pups out. And I mean, we, you know, prior many, many, many decades ago, there were mandates to, to introduce diseases into the wolf population and the coyote population and try to kill them that way. So there had to be concerted efforts um, to change the message, to have legal protection 
and to supplement that with bringing wolves into the ecosystem for that niche to be filled in Yellowstone. The and the timing was important. You know, I teach the highest goal is to not handle animals. So I've asked myself, should we have brought those wolves, gathered those wolves with without asking permission and, and brought them into Yellowstone? And I think absolutely yes. The corridors would be even tighter and more challenging over the decades. So I think timing was also an issue. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was really important. Do you feel it's the same for Colorado in terms of needing a concerted effort to, to make it happen or is, or is this a unique situation? For me, the similarity is we need to teach coexistence. There is also um, an important message about the value of the wolves, how they strengthen um, populations by, they improve the health of the population. There are states that have uh, management plans for elk where their goal is the number of hunter kill days. That in my opinion, and there's a, there's a growing sentiment among young professionals is the, the management goal should be to manage for healthy ungulate populations. That's what it should be. And then, then we get to hunt and trap and, and fish with healthy populations. And the wolves will strengthen the health of the populations. I see so many times, especially in Montana, where I used to live, that when, whenever there's chronic wasting disease, um, identified, they want to kill more deer. But the hunters have no ability to detect which deer are healthy or not. They also can only be in the field for a very small amount of time. But no one um, encourages to strengthen the wolf population in that area because wolves can see a sick animal. They'll recognize a sick animal. They'll hunt 24-7 and they can call and reduce the 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 infected uh, population uh, among deer, for example. And it's not you recognized as a tool. So for Colorado, I, I'm glad that it's moving forward. And I, I just really hope that it strengthens our recognition um, of the importance of coexistence and, and the biological value of the wolf. Yeah, you've touched on I feel like the major three or four points we've been hitting on, God, I feel like in the last two or three months with our, with our podcast. And I, I love your coexistence, you know, plight. And it's something that Stephen and I have really come to the, you know, really tried to push is the, is what we go, what we call this radical middle of having people understand the, again, the plight of the, the rancher and understand that, there's, like you said, the coexistence measures can be put in place with the Suzanne Asha Stones of the world um, that have been so successful and have been teaching so many individuals how to coexist with these predators on the landscape. When you teach and you do your workshops and, and with all this information that you have, is that part of what you're teaching also is the coexistence angle when you when you speak with, you know, any of the organizations or any of the agencies or any of the students that you talk to, is that another tool in your toolbox is, is speaking about coexistence? And it's sort of how I, I'd imagine it goes hand in hand with your care, compassion, respect, uh, catching um, 
and relocating tools as well. My, that message always comes out in, in my live interactions, and I've done my best to deeply integrate that into my online foundations of wildlife chemical capture course. And there it's in writing and, and it's, um, I just really wanted to be selective to make sure it didn't distract from, you know, teaching field-based techniques. In my Zoom meetings, in my, uh, you know, I haven't taught live since March of 2020, but in my live courses and, and in the ones that I'll do and, and the talks that I have with people, I'm always conveying this important message of care, compassion, and respect for everyone, everything. It is such an essential tool and there's a craving. You, you had a question earlier that was related to this. There is a craving among the younger generation and, and sometimes the older generation without them realizing it, that they want to give care, compassion and respect for everything. Let's treat every human being as a decent person for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Yeah. And, and find the common ground. Let's honor the land and recognize we should ask for permission to be here. We should ask for permission to have the land and the resources and, and be grateful for as much as we have um, and, and, and hold this with the greatest amount of respect. So here I have this opportunity. I'm touching a grizzly bear. Oh my gosh, what a profound experience this is. What an honor. And, um, and I know, and this is what's so much fun to teach. For example, when, when a biologist does temperature, pulse, and respiration, they put the stethoscope up to that animal. And, and that person, after hearing the heartbeat of a wolf, is never the same again. So yes, there's so many um, relationships, uh, so many ways that this care, compassion, and respect um, affects us in how we live our lives, how we work and with animals, how we do bookkeeping, how we go to the store. I mean, even treating a cashier with kindness makes a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. My courses are dedicated. My goal is to make the world a better place, one animal at a time and one person at a time. And so, yes, John, that, that message is conveyed throughout and it makes us stronger human beings. It makes us stronger professionals, not weaker professionals. Mm -hmm. It's so cool. You said that so beautifully because I, that's needed in terms of and I love what you just ended with, the fact that it doesn't make the professional weaker. It makes them a stronger, more fully aligned, and probably more complete professional of anything else. Because there are, you can tap into all these different facets of being technical, professional, but also having this emotion that doesn't take away from the work that you're doing, but it only adds to the work that you're doing. It only adds to the technique and the way that you can be better at your profession. And I, I love what you're saying about us as humans. And I agree with you. And I think all of us humans at some point need to care and, and learn from each other 
in a way that we can be better towards each other. And that's something that I think is missing um, or has been missing for quite some time. And hopefully it's, hopefully throughout this, this pandemic that we're still in or this, you know, we're coming out of it in some places that it's hopefully teaching people that we need to be there for each other as opposed to being against one another in so many ways. That's how we're going to survive. You know, there was more tension in the, in the past, you know, four years than less tension and there was less compassion. And now there's permission to speak in a crude, unkind way. And, and the only way we can get through the pandemic and the climate change and the, the dwindling resources is if we are, we are we are kinder to each other, one person at a time, no matter who we interact with. And what's really cool, here's another, bring this back to wildlife capture and handling, is the animals are our teachers. When we lean over a bobcat and we, we are radio collaring this animal, we don't want to bicker and argue. We want to set our ego aside because then we can focus on the well-being of the animal. We can do a better job at our at care for the animal, but also getting our work done. And so these animals put us into a situation where they teach us how to be better people. I am not going to bicker. I'll have a, a clear chain of command. And if I disagree, then I will voice my, my differing opinion and then support the choice that's being made. So when you talk about learning, I, I point out that the, the animals are teachers as well. I have that written up on my ethics page and uh, there's a variety of topics that talk about respecting the animal, having animals are, uh, as our teachers, and, um, and the well-being of the animal as highest priority. It just makes it so much more fun. It's just really exciting. <laughs> no, I agree with you. And I, everything that you have spoken about with us today is really just it's it's amazing because i i don't know what individuals would think about it when they go into one of your courses or thinking about wanting to be in wildlife capture and and relocation and if that's something because again as, as steven and and yourself and people have pointed out when you look at videos of wildlife being captured it is a very um intense um motion that happens or an intense, you know, an intense thing that, that happens in order to get this data or to help this animal out if it's hurt or injured. And so I, I think what you're teaching and what you're putting out in the world is something that is always needed is, is a way to do things better and more, like I said, more compassionate. What just give everybody, cause I have, and thank you by the way, for sending me your flyer. So I have, I have the flyer in front of me now as I'm speaking with you about it for the foundations of wildlife chemical capture. What, what are some of the things, if you were to tell somebody about your course or courses, what's the main thing that they should understand when going to look up what it's about and what are they going to get out of it? Or what you, what do you hope that they get out of taking your course and learning the practices that you've been doing over the past three decades? My goal for them at the very least, is to gather field-based practical techniques to lead them to success with great confidence in what they're doing. 
And one of the unique qualities of this course is it goes into detail about drug delivery, handling the animal, what we're doing when we're leaning over the animal. And, um, and so field-based techniques and monitoring TPRs using head covers, and if that's all they walk away with, and, and the field form for how to document the patient monitoring in chronological order, you know, if those basics are all they walk away from, then the course is a success. But there is so, so much more here. And it's, it, it offers far more details in how to move around the animal, how to move in the field. Um, another thing that it teaches, unlike the other courses, the courses tell you what to do. My course talks about ways of doing and ways of being. And when you talk about the excitement of captures, for example, what's really important is for us to look at ourselves and not get caught up in the, in the excitement. As we interact with the animal, approaching an animal to deliver the drugs, even if it's a dart gun, they're still gonna be close enough to be aware of us. If we're tense, they're gonna be tense. And there are non-physical connections that we have with animals. I get a little Zen once in a while, um, but they, they add a little bit of magic and people can always throw the Zen away if they don't want it. But it's, it's so valuable to think of ways of being, being calm, looking at yourself and being centered um, as we work. I just finished a Zoom meeting where I am consulting for um, a, another state wildlife agency handling lynx. And we talked about approaching the animal with a syringe pole. And it's all about ways of being besides ways of doing. For us to be relaxed and, and calm ourselves down so the animal does, you know, will calm down as well. If we, if we get caught up in the excitement and it's very intense, then we act more like a predator as we approach the animal. And we won't be nearly as successful in the drug delivery the heart rate of the animal will be higher because of more adrenaline and epinephrine, so the drugs won't be as effective. It, it touches many different uh, facets in the immobilization. So what they find in the course are detailed field techniques, detailed tools, practical ways of, of working su successfully, and then bringing in heartfelt values so that we can work in a, a more holistic way, if you will, and, and learn how to handle ourselves besides handling the animal. But this is far more than any course. You can get your certificate of training for 16 hours and that's what every other course does pretty much. But then there's access for a full year. So, so now this can be a reference library for people. It's an independent training. Registration is always open. You can take it anytime you wish on your own time, but I'm always there for interactive support. And it's as personalized and customized as each person wants to make it. Uh, I, I've even it strengthened and modified protocols for entire state wildlife agencies using the foundations course. Uh, it's, 
there's and then there's additional learning activities. I've got 44 additional learning activities so people can use that year access to follow links, go to vendors, look at agency protocols, um, all kinds of leads to more learning. You said some beautiful things too about being, and you and you've touched on this stuff throughout our discussion today, but it's a lot of in line of what we talk about at Wolf Connection is that our relationships start, especially with the wolves and wolf dogs that we have here on site, it starts without ever having physical contact with the animals that we have on site. And so your first relationship, your first bonding experience is always through the fence. Sometimes it's, it's on hike and it's not necessarily a physical connection. And so what you said just really hit me in a, in a good way that if we can teach some of these techniques in, in the way that you're proposing and that the way that you are doing yourself, it's really going to filter out, I hope, into other ways that we interact with wildlife. And as we said just a few minutes ago, as we interact with humans, interact with ourselves. And I really believe that a lot of people, I feel like if people can get more grounded in nature and figure out a way to connect with nature in some way, whether it's just hiking, whether it's taking a course like yours, volunteering at a shelter some way and understanding the dynamics in that way, it may help us as we head into the future as human beings to be able to figure out how to coexist and just be with the world around us in, in a better way and in a better fashion. Yeah, absolutely, John. And you've, you've experienced it yourself, how interacting with these animals do teach us some wonderful values that we never really knew we were going to learn. It's, it's so remarkable. It's so remarkable. And I hope more and more people have opportunities to, to try to gain this experience. And um, it doesn't require contact or touching the animal, as you say. Mm. And it's just, yeah, it's just been great. And I thank you for, for all the, the information. And we'll, and we'll get to, I want you to promote more of your course your websites and and your teachings where people can go and sign up and look for these things. My final question for you is when you hear the word wolf, what is the thing that comes to your mind? Teacher. Actually the native American medicine of wolf is teacher. And, and I've been fortunate to have wolf a, a part of my life in, in so many ways. And Gosh, I, I started taking photographs as a veterinary student without even realizing that I wanted to teach. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's it. And, and for the wolf to teach us how to live together. And thank you for this opportunity, John. Uh, and I want to say, oh, if, people wanna if people want to follow me, they can sign up for my newsletter. I'll give uh, news, uh, monthly newsletters out and updates, and uh, I'll be adding additional courses. So that's a really good way to follow along. And also, I have the Wildlife Capture and Care blog, which has a variety of articles that you can read at your leisure without any registrations. And uh, there's some really cool topics 
by guest authors as as well as by myself. That's terrific. And so the website for that, I, I believe, is www.wildlifecapturingcare.com. That's the blog, correct? That's correct. That's where the blog is as well. Yep. Okay. And where I'm going to have this in the description, but if they want to sign up and look at the information for your course, where what's the website or, or where's something they can go to to find the literature on that? So on my new website, which I'm actually still working on and finishing, there is an online course page. It will link to the Foundations of Wildlife Chemical Capture. Uh, if you Google it, there is a course information page that people can um, go to as well. And it's kind of the landing page for the course. Uh, and I and. In- I encourage people to go to the website to, to look at the blog, look at the ethics page is if that is of interest to you. I have letters to the animals where I've asked University of Montana students to write a letter of invitation to the animal population or species, inviting them to participate in their chemical captures. And, and those are uh, quite uh, profound uh, messages and, uh, and stories. Steven, I know you just got back on. I, I wrapped up and, and asked my question. Do you have anything else you want to ask uh, Dr. Mark before he, he signs off with us? No, sir. I was going to ask him to um, talk a little bit about those letters to the animals, but it sounds like he just did that because I was reading that. And that is that seems like a very unique and pertinent approach to the other concepts you were talking about in the beginning. Yeah, it's all related, and it's a perspective that uh, people don't always uh, think about. And who you can argue that I'm never asking for permission um, before capture and handling, but I'll share a little secret with you. Before the night before I capture wildlife, I do a little. Gosh, am I allowed to call it a ceremony? And I ask the animal first. I apologize for the crudeness of our ways because wildlife capture and handling is, is crude. And, and then I thank them for all they give me for purpose and, and abundance. And, and I'm, as I mentioned earlier, food on the table, roof over my head and clothes on, on my back. And then the third thing is I invite them to grace me with their presence, but they know it's really kind of a running joke. I really want them to step into my trap. And they know that, and, and I know that, so uh, we all get along. And it's a little something I do before captures, usually in secret, sometimes with uh, a few close friends. It doesn't distract from what we are doing scientifically. Um, it, it helps us participate as human beings in this magnificent wildlife profession. And it's not for, for everyone, but uh, it's okay. And uh, I thank you both for this opportunity. This is a little more heartfelt than I had <laughs> planned on. A little more zen, but it's a, an important topic. Mm. And um, I'm honored to share that with you. So yeah, thank absolutely. you. Thank you. No, I listen, Dr. Mark Johnson, this has been, I love that what we touched on today, you, sir, are really putting both of the, the emotional parts and the scientific parts and the physical parts together. And uh, I recommend anybody, please check out his, uh, Dr. Mark's website, check out his courses. Um, If the discussion we had today is any look into your teachings, uh, I would sign up tomorrow. So those of you uh, take a look, we're going to have everything in our description. 
Dr. Mark Johnson, thank you, sir, for everything that you've done over the the years and that you continue to do and you continue to teach out in the world. So thank you for for joining us today. Thank you, John and Steve. I'm I'm honored. Thank you. No problem. Howls to everybody out there. And Steve and I will be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information. 